Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, hear the word of the Lord. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Almighty God, and you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and we ask this morning that you would open our eyes to the wonders of your word. Give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of wisdom. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, we're seeing in our first sermon series, first sermons of the series in Matthew that after millennia of prophetic anticipation, prophetic promises that the Messiah is coming, and then that 400-year, give-or-take period of uh, intertestamental silence, Matthew is um, really making the point in these opening chapters that in Jesus, the fulfillment of all of those promises of anticipation find their fulfillment— And he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the son of David, which makes him the heir of the eternal throne and eternal kingdom. He is the son of Father Abraham, the father of the faith, and therefore the one through whom all of the nations of the world, every tribe and tongue will be blessed. In the same manner, he is not exactly what Israel was expecting, though. As spectacular as Christ is and as unprecedented as this period in history was with his coming, Matthew also emphasizes that there are some very unexpected things about this Messiah. For example, when you look at his genealogy, it does not strike you as the genealogy of a conquering king. But very clearly, the message is sent, this Messiah is coming not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. And he's coming to sinners. And he's coming through a line of sinners. And it turns out he's not coming to set up a nationalistic geopolitical kingdom, at least not in his first coming. But he has a much more profound and, I think, in um, God's providence, as these things unfold, we find a much more important mission, which is destroying the works of the devil, dealing with the fundamental human problem of sin. And that's why Joseph is told in verse 21, she'll bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is the the primary goal of the first advent of Christ, dealing with sin, dealing with the devil, once and for all dealing with evil in anticipation of the second advent where all of these things will be brought to a full consummation. Now, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we pointed out that one of the distinctive features of Matthew's gospel is what are often called fulfillment 
formulas. We saw one back in verse 23 where he quoted the prophet Micah or prophet Isaiah uh, about 700 years before. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew is very clear to emphasize this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This interest in the idea that the fulfillment of prophecy lends a lot of credibility to the story that's being told here and a lot of credibility that Jesus is who he claims to be. Matthew uses that fulfillment formula 10 times in his gospel. In our passage this morning, we use, he uses it three times. But in addition to those 10, he also in many other places, emphasizes the idea, maybe not with explicitly saying this took place to fulfill prophecy, but the same idea. But you might remember when we looked at the prophecy from Isaiah back in chapter one, it's more what you think of when you think of prophecy typically. It was a prediction of something that's going to happen in the future. And then many hundred years go by It comes to pass as predicted in its confirmation, clear confirmation that God is the God of history and that his providence is at work and that history is not just a random uh, succession of events that just happen. But God is providentially overshadowing all of that, bringing these things to pass. But this morning, the three fulfillment formulas that are before us operate in a different way. They're not your typical prophecy predicting something that's going to happen in several hundred years. And let me show you what I mean by that. I want to look at each one. First, verses 13 to 15, we read about the flight to Egypt. Now, in God's grace, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and warned him to escape to Egypt because Jesus was going to try to kill him. Herod was going to try to kill Jesus. And we know from the story, not knowing exactly where Jesus was, not knowing exactly how old Jesus was, Herod determines to kill all of the boys under two years of age in this geographical region. And this takes us, if you know your Old Testament, right back to Israel. Because you remember in the Old Testament, this is very intentional on Matthew's part, It was Israel that was under the threat of death. In the Old Testament, it was the threat of death by famine. And you'll remember Israel sheltered in Egypt until the threat of death had passed. Well, we come to Matthew's gospel in a very similar fashion. He brings to mind the fact that Jesus is also going to shelter in Egypt until the death, the threat of death from Herod passes. And in a very similar way, Moses was saved by sheltering in Egypt from the murderous plot of Pharaoh so that he could later save his people. Jesus is going to be sheltered from the murderous plot of Herod in order that he might later save the people of God. So when the danger passes, Jesus is called back out of Egypt And Matthew indicates that this is a fulfillment of what the Lord spoke by the prophet Hosea in Hosea 11.1. He quotes it in verse 15. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But here's where it's a little bit puzzling. 
Because if you go back and you look at Hosea 11.1, you'll see that Hosea is not looking to the future and making a prediction of something that's going to happen in many hundred years to come. But in fact, in Hosea 11, Hosea is looking back to the past and he's looking to the past when the exodus occurred and God called Egypt, Israel out of Egypt. And so it raises a legitimate question. How is this a fulfillment? How is quoting a prophet who's talking about something that already happened in the past, a fulfillment when it comes to Jesus? And here's the answer to that question. The answer comes when you recognize that the calling of Israel out of Egypt and the calling of Jesus out of Egypt are closely related. Israel was called out of Egypt because God was determined to fulfill his promise to Abraham to bring his people into blessing. And in a very similar fashion, Jesus we come to the New Testament, is also called out of Egypt for the exact same reason, to fulfill the promise to Abraham to bring his people into blessing. In fact, these events are so closely related in their purpose, God's salvation purposes, that the first exodus with Pharaoh and Moses shadows or anticipates the second exodus here played out by Herod and Jesus. And the theological term for this kind of relationship between two events in the scriptures is a typology. This is called a typology. That's a different function of prophecy from the one we saw in chapter one, where it's predicting the future. Some of you may be wondering about the title of the sermon, The Circle is Now Complete. Well, it turns out this is a quote from a well-known 1977 epic space saga subtitled A New Hope. And in this epic space saga, you have the primary antagonist in a climactic battle with one of the primary heroes And in that 1977 film, one of the famous lines spoken by the antagonist to the hero is the circle is now complete. Now, why is that significant? Well, as soon as the audience heard that line in 1977, it set off a wave of speculation that there's something more going on here than just this two-hour installment. It sent the clear signal, there's a whole backstory here. There's a whole lot of things that have transpired pointing to this moment, leading up to this moment, foreshadowing this moment, pointing to this moment as a sign, and whatever all those things were, and at the moment you just don't know, you just let your mind race with it, you know this is of preeminent significance that these two have come together in this epic battle. And whatever the circle is, and whatever it means that it's complete, it means something profound. 
And I think that's very similar to the idea that's happening here. You've got this first exodus going all the way back to the Old Testament. And it's a type. It's a shadow. It's a copy. And this second exodus is what we would call the antitype. But it's the original. This is the real story of the Bible. The birth of Jesus Christ. The sheltering in Egypt. The coming out of Egypt to save his people. This is the real story. That that first exodus, and even though it came first chronologically, it turns out it's the shadow. It's the picture. It's the... A vague hint that something much bigger is playing out here on the stage of salvation history. And with the coming of Christ and Matthew drawing these things together, in a very real sense, the message is being sent that the circle is now complete. Both of these events manifest the same saving purpose of God. The first anticipates the second. But because that first one was just a picture, a wonderful picture, a great teaching tool, one of the greatest stories of the Bible. But because it was just a picture, it did not accomplish everything that God was ultimately purposing for his people in fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. It did not bring them into the fullness of salvation. It did not provide them with everlasting rest. It was a copy of those things. But Matthew's saying now with the coming of Jesus, those things are fulfilled. The everlasting rest is here. Everlasting life is here. The fullness of salvation is here. And in that sense... This was spoken to fulfill what the prophet had written. A new exodus. The first exodus is a shadow. But the exodus of Jesus out of Egypt is the real deal. This is what it was all pointing to. Second, Rachel weeping for her children. Matthew does this again. I think he's doing the exact same thing three times in a row here. In this particular use of prophecy. Second, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is another example of typology. Herod, in his rage, ordered all the male children under two years of age to be massacred. Again, takes our mind right back to the Old Testament, takes our mind right back to the Exodus. You'll remember in Egypt, Pharaoh also sought to kill all the male babies of Israel, right? This instantly reminds us of Pharaoh killing the male children. But then he reminds us of another parallel. That's the reference here in Jeremiah. The reference in Jeremiah, again, if you go back and look at it, it's not a prophet predicting hundreds of years in the future. 
But it's again a prophet looking to the past and looking to things that already happened. And in this case, he's looking back to that time when the northern kingdom of Israel was overthrown by the Assyrian Empire and the majority of its people were whisked away into exile. And Rachel was weeping for her children, just like mothers are weeping for their children in the slaughter of the innocents. So he's just pointing out these Old Testament shadows, these Old Testament types, these Old Testament parallels. And the prophet Jeremiah promised to Rachel, promised to the people of Israel that one day their tears would be wiped away. That this horrific event of deportation and defeat by a foreign enemy would be followed up ultimately by deliverance and blessing. So you see what he's doing. He's pointing to these Old Testament parallels. He's pointing to the, the time that the first exodus led to such grief and despair and so many tears. Pharaoh's destruction of the Israelite children. But he says, remember, it was followed by deliverance. It was followed by blessing. Look at the, look at the, uh, the time the Assyrian army came in and, and invaded and the Israelites were at the mercy of the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but it ended in ultimate deliverance and blessing. And just like that, when you look at Jesus Christ, you could almost say it's that if, if this, then how much more in Christ? Those are just the shadows. Those are just pointing to general themes that are fully and finally consummated in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there is the weeping for children today, but it's going to be followed by ultimate deliverance and salvation and blessing in God's providence. And all of this is just the antitype of the things that those prophets were foreshadowing so long ago. Let me give you a third example. And I think this is the most difficult. Verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I say this one is the most difficult of the three that Matthew presents to us here in chapter 2, and the reason I say that is because there's no verse in the Old Testament that says what Matthew claims in verse 23. In fact, if you scour the Old Testament, there's no reference to Nazareth, period. But don't let that bother you. Liberals have a hate over that. Don't let that bother you. Let me point out something. You'll notice in verse 23... Matthew, first of all, does not quote a prophet. He quotes a prophet in the other two. He does not quote a prophet here. And he very distinctly does not say a prophet, but he says, verse 23, the prophets. Not one prophet, but many prophets. In other words, he presents it as a 
summary statement of what many people thought based on the general message that was being sent by the prophets. Now, what's the general message being sent by the prophets? Well, I think a real clue to this is found in John's gospel. John chapter one, verse 46. You may remember when Nathanael heard that Jesus, the Messiah, came from Nazareth. You remember what he said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the point is not so much Nazareth. The point is what do people think when they hear of Nazareth? I was trying to think of a modern parallel. And one that I think is appropriate would be Podunk. Can anything good come out of Podunk? To my knowledge, there's not even a real place called Podunk. Maybe there is, but I know exactly what it means when somebody says that. What's in Podunk? Well, it's nondescript. It's insignificant. It's of no consequence. Everybody knows nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It's code for a nondescript, off-the-beaten-path It's this small town 55 miles north of Bethlehem, if that tells you how rural it is. It's just nowhere. And I don't think Matthew's point is so much that one prophet one time quoted that he would be a resident of Nazareth, because that's not what Matthew says, and we don't have a prophet that said that. But we have a whole handful of prophecies in the Old Testament attesting to this idea That whatever you expect in a Savior, whatever you expect in this Christ, whatever you expect in this Messiah, the prophets are clear. He's going to come from a place that is of no consequence in the eyes of the world. That is a true statement about the prophets. And I think Nazarene here, Nazareth here, is just being used as a code word to convey that message. Remember... One of the major points in these opening two chapters of Matthew is this theme that, yes, he is the Messiah, but friends, just about everything surrounding this Messiah and who he is and the manner of his coming and the manner of his ministry is not what you would expect He is the king of Israel. He is the heir of David's throne. He is God with us. He is worthy of worship. Yes, to all of that. But at the same time, and in a completely unexpected manner, in his first advent, he comes in lowliness. He comes in humility. He comes surrounded by great turmoil and great sorrow, he comes in lowliness from nowhere of consequence in the world's eyes. And he doesn't come to conquer yet. Not in a militaristic sense, but he comes to lead a new exodus out of bondage to sin and death. And that more than anything else, fulfills what has been spoken by the prophets. And if I may put it this way, 
in Jesus Christ, the circle is now complete. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word and we thank you for the precious stories and promises and typologies of the Old Testament, all preparing the hearts, all preparing the minds of your people in anticipation for the one to whom this entire book attests, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.